0: Hello and welcome to another Profiles of Endurance. I'm Father Scott Vanderveer. We never know at the beginning of life what challenges we may face. And it would seem, if life were to be fair, that if you're born with a severe birth defect, that ought to be the main challenge of your life. And Julianne Horrocks, today's guest, was indeed born with a serious birth defect that required a lot of surgery to overcome but that was by far not her only challenge. A snafu during a surgery led to paralysis for a time. She's had cancer multiple times. She's gone through incredible loss, both in relationships and also of loved ones to death. And she has, through it all, fought to gain and claim her place in the world. She has grown her self-esteem through her faith and through using the tools that have been given to her from different fellowships that she's been a part of. And she's with us here today to help us hear her story and through it, gain the kind of resilience that we need to face our own life challenges. Julianne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Father. It is an honor. It is an honor. So many people here might not realize that they, they know you if they're churchgoers, especially at St. Mary's in Koksaki. You're one of our cantors and a member of our choir. Maybe they'll recognize you that way. But they, very few people, I think, know the, the fullness of your story. I'm honored to be somebody who, who has gotten to hear a little bit about it. Let's start at the beginning. Talk to us about the family you grew up in, about your parents and your siblings.
1: So I was born the third out of seven children in a typical Irish Catholic family, and uh, my mother was a stay-at-home mom, and my dad worked full-time, and when he came home from work, he worked from seven to three, he had no problem pitching in and helping my mom with all the chores, Mm. and um, they were very faith-filled, I didn't quite really understand Uh, The impact of that until I got older, but um, my mother once said to me, as I was getting older, the only thing I have to leave you is my face. Mm. And as I've gotten older, I certainly understand that and have said that to my children, because that's the most important thing that I've experienced over the years. Um, I was born um, with a birth defect called oral facial digital syndrome, which is extremely rare. And... um, That was a a challenge. Um, Growing up with medical issues and being in and out of the hospital and um, going to school and being uh, bullied uh, because of the way I looked was extremely painful. Mm. And um, I wish at the time I had had my parents' faith, but I really didn't, as I said, um, understand that then. Um, as a family, we would kneel down after dinner and we would pray and say the rosary. And, um, I think my mom, again, was, was giving me then a uh, tools to cope, but I didn't see it as that way back
0: then. Mm. How would somebody who was meeting you as a little girl know that you were dealing with that syndrome?
1: Um, I was born, um, with many cysts in, in my mouth. Um, I was born with a partial cleft palate. Um, I was born with um, part of the uh, bone in my nose was missing. Uh, my chin was missing. So I had plastic surgery as a um, not until I was about 16 because I needed to go through puberty first before everything had stopped growing. So, um, you know, until I was 16, it, like I said, in school it was very, very difficult.
0: And I would imagine that although it is wise to wait for puberty to elapse before starting that, for obvious reasons. It strikes me that to be 16 and a a teenage young woman and and have all of these surgeries is a a challenge of a whole other kind.
1: Very much, very much so. Again, um, I didn't really... I found it very strange that after the surgery, people wanted to be my friend, people asked me out to the prom, And I kept thinking to myself, I'm the same person inside. Why did no one see that? Yes. You know? Um, Yes. And and actually, at at the time, I didn't realize what an honor it was. But I went to my junior prom with with a boy who was blind.
0: Oh. Um,
1: And he asked me to only, and I thought to myself later on, what an honor. He actually liked me for me.
0: (gasps) Wow. That's powerful. It is.
1: And again, when I look back on my life, all these little signs were there, and I believe it was my higher power putting all these little signs in my way, saying, "You know what? we'll get through this there there, there are other things to look at and focus on and and to see little tiny uh, pieces of pleasure through the pain
0: mm. did Did you have some self-talk that helped you at that time? how does a how does a young woman? I mean, you were, you were raised with tools that your parents gave you, though maybe you and they didn't realize that they were tools. They were just ways of surviving. But what, what was your self talk like at that time? Can you remember any of that? Um,
1: it, I was depressed. I was depressed. Um, my self talk was um, before the surgery, you know, I can't see myself making it till 30 years old. Mm. Um, it was, you know, please take me if, if I can't get away from this pain. Um, you know, so, um, I'm so grateful for, for having to get help after the surgery and, um, and to start to work on myself and, and to understand that it was so important to work on myself, knowing that the person inside, as I said, was the same person I, that really, I think was a motivation to figure out what's going on here with me and, um, and the world.
0: Mmm. So powerful. It's so powerful, and so I'm just realizing that you know, in our own town here, we have had a number of families uh, raise children with birth defects, um, and and that is a that as long as we are having children, I think that will be a reality. It's uh, it's a mystery of life that uh, not every child is born healthy and and with physical wholeness what What do you feel now as a woman who who shows for all of us who know you absolutely no trace of a birth defect? When I first heard that you went through that, i I tried to imagine um, you looking differently than you do now, and it was hard to do. you your your face is just beautiful and so proportional and um, so what what do you feel now about children with birth defects and and what they need, and what we as a society, can offer to people born with that challenge?
1: Um, I, I think that it's a shame that we as a society don't look within, um, you know, beauty truly is in the eye of the beholder and people are much more, um, than what the outside projects. It's kind of like, you know, that old saying of don't judge a book by its cover. Mm. Um, I would just say you know I think also ask questions um not in a in a shameful way but um, in a curious way uh, mm. try and get to know people more than just seeing the outside
0: mm. what when did you realize that you might be able to have a spouse and children like other people did. Was that something you allowed yourself to dream as a young person, or did it did you have to wait for that dream for a certain time?
1: I had to wait for that, that dream. I, uh, uh, you know, like I said, I was in and out of the hospital. And when I had my last operation at age sixteen, um, I was in the hospital, and a nurse gave me an injection into the sciatic nerve mm. to go
2: in
1: to put me asleep. And when I woke up, I woke up paralyzed on my left side. Mm. Um, And so, you know, that added on to all the other complications. Um, I just thought, oh my God, will this never end? Mm. And I didn't see see a husband in the future. I didn't see children in the future. Um, But eventually I did meet a man and um, I had known him for many years. uh, He was a very good friend of um, somebody I went to high school with,
2: mm. and
1: um, we met and we married, and um, I got pregnant with my daughter, of my first child, and when I was about six months pregnant with her, my sister, who was a nurse, um, ran into the doctor who had done some work on me as a child, and he asked about how I was, and she said, oh, she's fine, she's married and she's pregnant. He his jaw dropped, and he said, this is congenital, and um, she
2: should not be pregnant. Oh. We really um, think she should have a misca- uh,
1: an abortion. And um, as I said, I was six months pregnant at that point, and he asked her to have me come in and see him. And I went in to see him, and he did the amniocentesis and all those um, med- uh, those uh, tests to see about birth defects, and he said, you know, there's a 50-50% chance that this child has it, it is congenital, Um, it's lethal to males, we don't know what the sex is, but um, he said, um, if you should miscarriage, it was a boy, and if it's a girl, again, you have this 50-50% of handing this down to her. And uh, it was at that point that I started to really start to pray and remember some of those gifts that my parents gave me. And I went to speak to my um, priest at the time, and I asked him what to do, and he said, I can't tell you that. He said, you need to pray on it and make those decisions yourself. And um, I went and I spoke to my parents, and my father said to me, no matter what you decide to do, I will support you. And, you know, being brought up in such an Irish Catholic home it just really wasn't an option mm. and um so i decided to have the child and she was born perfect oh. her, her afr score was almost a perfect 10 and um i remember being so upset and angry and sent the, the doctors all the postcards saying this is uh, with a picture saying this is the child you asked me to abort
2: mm.
1: and um And so, you know, um, I was so happy to have this little girl and we tried, uh, several more times for me to have more children and I kept miscarrying. I had three miscarriages Mm. and so then we tried, um, um, what is it? The, um, oh God, I can't.
0: Uh, a, fertiliz- a fertilization process? Yes,
1: we, we tried a, fer- a fertilization process. And we went to Philadelphia, and we tried that several times, and that didn't work. Mm. And then I found out that I had cervical cancer.
2: Oh, And my.
1: so I had a hysterectomy at the age of 32 and decided to adopt. And I adopted a little boy from Korea, um, and I received him at age six months. And I thought, my family is complete. This is just wonderful.
0: Mm. What was it like to have a child born uh, naturally and a child who was adopted whose biology was not yours? What was the what was it like having one of each experience in your family?
1: Well, it's funny because so many people said to me, oh, you have one healthy child. Why don't you just leave it as it is? And I said, you know, I don't tell anybody else how, to, how many children they should have. Ah,
2: um, <laughs> so true. You know,
1: so. um, I want another child, and I'll go about it in any way possible. And then I thought to myself, because people told me, oh, you're not going to love this child as much as you, you do your birth child. And I didn't find that to be true at all. I fell in love from the very first picture I got. Mm. Um, and... Um, you know, again, I just think because of, of my struggles, I was so patient with this child who came with difficulties. He didn't sit up. He didn't have a lot of muscle uh, coordination, and um, I wondered whether there was something medically wrong with him, but he was just, you know, people said to me, again, I went through an agency, and they said to me, imagine going to a totally different country with every smell and every taste being different, and every touch being different,
2: mm.
1: you know, allowing him his time to, and I did, and he blossomed into a beautiful little boy,
2: mm. and,
1: um, you know, I didn't, to me, I didn't see, and it's funny because kids would say to me, um, when I, I tell them that Caleb's friend said he was adopted, they say, no, he doesn't, he looks just like you.
2: And, <laughs> and Wonderful. I, myself, children just don't
1: see it, they just don't see it.
2: They don't see color
1: difference, they don't see hair difference, they don't see eye difference. And it's funny because at one point, my son, I wanted him to go to a very interracial school so that he wouldn't be different. And I sent him there, and there was a little Korean girl there, and her name was Young Shim. And I remember picking up from school and saying, how was school? And he said, I don't like it, I'm not going back. Mm. And I said, why not? And he said to me, I don't like anybody there. And I said, well, what about young Shim?" I said, she looks just like you. She's a very pretty little girl. Hmm. And I said, she has eyes like you and hair like you. He said to me, no, she doesn't. I look just like my mom. And I realized at that point that my house didn't really have any mirrors small enough for a toddler to see. (laughs) And I picked him up and went to the bathroom and I said, you know, our hair is different. Our eyes are different. I said, but you're mine. And I love you. Mm. And I said, you'll always be mine. And at that point, it seemed to make it a little bit easier for him to realize that you can, and I would say to him, different isn't wrong.
2: Different Uh. isn't
1: wrong. Different is just different. And, you know, um, the movie Tarzan came out. And that became our little film that we would watch together because of the fact that, you know, Tarzan was adopted by and loved by this gorilla who looked nothing like him. And, uh, you know, she sang that song, You'll Be In My Heart Forever, and that became our song.
2: Oh. um,
1: Unfortunately, I found out about when he was about age 14 um, and he got hurt on a football field, that he had something called polycystic kidneys, which was part of oral facial digital syndrome that I had had. So I was born with the polycystic kidneys, and he, apparently he was. And when they told me this in the hospital, I said, oh, no, 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 you're, you've got my file. And right. he said, "No, oh, we have his file, and he has it worse than you, Joe."
0: The chances have got to be infinitesimal. I can't imagine.
1: I, I, he was meant to be mine. He was meant to be
0: mine. He was. He was, yeah. A mother who understood intimately that struggle. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What happens when when you have a a serious case of this polycystic kidney disease? um,
1: Cysts form in your kidneys, and they become solidified, and they take over the function of your kidney, and eventually your kidneys fail. And so I wound up having a kidney transplant. Um, My brother gave me kidney, and um, I had always worried about not knowing his... I don't know, knew nothing of his family from Korea. Um, and so it always worried me that, you know, if he needs a transplant, where will he get it since we didn't share biological, um, genetics. Um, but it didn't seem to be really in the way at all until he started to get older. Um, and, um, You know, as my children got older, uh, we wound up getting divorced, my husband and I. He had his own demons. And Mm. um, my son was six at the time, and my daughter was 12. And I remember my son crying uh, until he passed out on my lap, just saying, will he still be my soccer coach?
2: And I
1: had to say to him, I I don't know what's going to go on from here, but just remember, mommy is your mommy, and I'll never leave you.
2: Mm. And,
1: um... You know, my kids grew up, um, I realized at that point with the divorce that I had never had any education, or um, I had uh, never finished, I had finished probably 90% of the way an accounting degree, and and didn't really have any education or self-esteem, and hadn't really worked in a long time, and so um, I decided to go back to school, and that meant I had to start over from the... uh, um, from the associates way up to the masters, I decided to go to school for social
2: work.
0: and so can we pause there for a second because I yeah. just think for anyone listening, we are in awe. I mean I'm just going through some of the things that you've shared that you were born with a birth defect, that you were paralyzed for a time on your left side from a, an anesthesia mistake. you got cancer and had to have a hysterectomy. you had a kidney transplant. Uh, because of not being able to have a second biological child, you adopted a child. You found out that child had a kidney disease. You um, were divorced. How did you keep going? When You said it so beautifully. I think any of us could understand. Your self-esteem had to be shot, and you must have been racked with fear because somebody with an associate's degree... Is, is likely to expect, I'm going to have a really hard time finding a job good enough to be the sole earner for these two children and myself.
1: I was riddled with fear. Um, the house got sold uh, immediately and I drove around in my car saying, where are we going to live? Um, what am I going to do? And again, I wound up talking to a girlfriend of mine and she said, come to Newport." And she lived there, and she had three adopted children,
2: Mm. and she was
1: a social worker, and she said to me, I will help you. And I drove around, and I couldn't seem to afford anything at the time, and I couldn't seem to find anything, and school was going to start, and these children were not registered anywhere. And I remember driving down this one road with my kids in the back of the car, and um went to turn around in this dead end and I found an apartment complex at the end end of the dead end
2: Uh. and
1: I went in and I said is there a management office here that I could speak to and I said oh no the management office isn't here Um, and there was this one woman who was getting in her car and she was gracious to talk to me and I said do you know if there's any of these apartments I said that are available and um she said to me I'm moving out Uh. she said um would you like to see my apartment? And I walked in and it was a two bedroom. And I said, um, at that point I was getting child support. And I said, this is all I can afford. And she said, that's all the rent is.
2: Wow. So I, I just assumed that was God in action. And, um,
1: you know, I said a prayer and called the agency and I got the apartment and my two children shared a bedroom. And I had a bedroom, and um, that's when I just you know was going back to school, and my daughter would leave uh, eighth, uh, ninth grade, and come home and get my son off the bus, and he would, she would watch him while I went to school, and then I also had to do an internship, and um, you know, so there was a lot of juggling. Of I didn't have family around me. My parents lived, and my family lived two hours away. But I had some really nice, grateful, wonderful friends
2: Mm. who who found me a job that, um, watched my children, that rotated their own shifts.
1: Um, I was just so blessed. I was so blessed. Um, and I think that's, again, where my faith just got strengthened, that no matter how fearful I am, um. You know, faith seems to always override fear. Someone once told me that fear and faith can't live in the same house and I have to choose one.
0: Uh, and so and I chose choose faith. faith. Uh, that's powerful. What It feels to me like one of the things listening to your story that is an essential part of it is you have to be willing to. For the faith to kick in, you have to be willing an uncomfortably long amount of time past when you would really like to have had a solution by now. You know, driving oh, yes. around, driving around saying, I can't afford anywhere. Where are we going to live? That's a really frightening place to be. But mm-hmm. that, that is when God's power showed up the most strongly, was in it the is. hopeless. I, mean, I
1: remember pulling over and before we found this apartment and saying to my kids, let's just say a prayer. Please, we have to find something. And I'm sure my children were filled with fear also. Um, and like I said, immediately we t- t- made a dead end turn and there was the apartment. So uh,
0: Unbelievable. Un- yeah. and, yet, and yet, for those of us who know that God is at work, I mean, there's people listening right now with tears in their eyes because that's the God they know. They're familiar yes. with that God. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Where was your anger at this time? Divorce brings up a lot of emotions, and one of them often is just anger. How were you carrying... I was full of
1: anger. I was filled with anger. Between anger as my childhood, anger at... um, uh, I never got angry at God. I just got angry at... I was angry at my husband. Um, I was angry at my situation. I was angry that my family wasn't close enough to really give me as much support as I need in. Mm. Um, and anger really did take a, for a couple of years, a, a real hard toll on me. Yes. And, um, you know, I don't know if I've, I've really ever gotten totally rid of it. It still pops its ugly head up when things don't go my way, and I have to tell myself to let it go. That yes. You know, um, that God's will is more important than mine. Um, and I've been fortunate enough that every time I've prayed to God and people say they don't believe this, but it's everything I've prayed for. I've ever gotten,
2: but just not in
1: my Mm. timeline. And so if I've been patient long enough, I have gotten everything I ever prayed for.
2: Um,
1: um, and things were, went, went well for a while. I graduated with my master's. Um, I began working. Uh, my daughter got married, um, uh, she had a beautiful grandchild, and and then I got a call one afternoon um, that she had been in a terrible accident and broken her neck. And she was in Airlifted to Albany Med, mm. and she had just had her second baby, which was a toddler at the time, probably I don't know, probably six months old. Mm. And the kids were in the car, and by the grace of God, they were not affected at all. I mean, probably emotionally, but physically, they were fine. Mm. Um, and so I started coming up this way every weekend to help her out. Um, I would work Monday through Friday and take a half a day every Friday and come up and spend the weekend up here. Um, and, uh, she also had a home health aide that would come in and, um, you know, help her out with the children, help her bathe, um, help her do whatever she needed to do. Oh. Um, and at the time, my son then, of course, he called me to say, t- I called him to let him know his sister was in the hospital and he, they had an extremely close relationship. They, you know, um, the two of them never saw any difference as far as race, color, creed,
2: mm.
1: um, uh, they were inseparable. Mm. Um, and so he, when I called him and told him, he said, I'm coming tonight. And it was late at night, like 10, 10 o'clock. And I said, I don't think the hospital will let you in. He said, I'm coming. Don't tell me anything else. I'll be there. Oh. And he got up there about midnight. And somehow somebody let him in the hospital. And he came and he stood by her side and did not leave her. And he said to me, Mom, I don't feel well. He said, I've been urinating blood. Oh. And I said, Caleb, we're in a we're in the hospital. Go down in the emergency room. And I said, get it checked out. He said, I'm not leaving my sister. Hmm. And four months later he was dead.
2: Oh
0: no. And
1: he died of a cerebral hemorrhage from his kidney failure.
0: Oh my. <sighs> Did you, when you knew I just want to pause with the immensity of that loss for a second because our, some of our listeners didn't see that coming and they are just so filled with sorrow and compassion that that would be part of the story. Oh, Julianne, did you uh, foresee that his uh, kidney disease could lead to his, his early death? Was that something that was on your mind or was it a total surprise?
1: Um, it wasn't a total surprise. Like I said, the doctors had told me he had polycystic disease um, and to watch it. And um, as he got older, he'd say to me, I'm getting headaches. And so I said to him, you know, and one, one day, one day he, I found him on the couch for like two days straight. He didn't move. And I said, what's going on? He said, I have the worst headache I've ever had in my life. And I said, you need to go to the emergency room.
2: Mm. And he went to the
1: emergency room, and he saw a doctor who must have told him, um, you know, that he had high blood pressure, and he had to take blood pressure medicine. But he was twenty-four year old years old when he passed, and you know, I don't think a child that age who wants to go out and be with his friends and party and and works and believes that it's that important, and he didn't, he wasn't conse- uh, consecutive in taking his medication. Mm. Uh, consistent with it, and um, the headaches were getting worse, and as I look back now, you know, when you live with somebody daily, um, you don't see them getting worse, but when I look at pictures now, I see how healthy he looked in one picture, and how skinny he is in other pictures,
2: Ah.
1: and I think to myself, I didn't see that, I didn't see that,
2: Mm. Um,
1: you know, so the high blood pressure, I'm sure, got the best of him. And, um, that's when he had the cerebral hemorrhage. Um, and I, you know, I didn't foresee it coming because I had, I was working and he, he and I had had a troubled, uh, you know, he had his own demons uh, about being, um, adopted and then having his adopted father leave him also. And, and, um, he was, uh, very troubled by that and he was just getting his life together. And he had got a, a very good job that he was doing well in. And he called me one day at work and he said, Let's go to dinner. I'd love to take you out to dinner. Wow. And I said, That's great. And um, he said, Let's do Monday night. And I said, Fine. And that was probably a Friday afternoon. And I said, I'm going up to Katie's, you know, to take care of her. And um, I said, When I come back Monday, we'll meet we'll, we'll for dinner. And by Monday, he was dead.
0: Oh. Um,
1: so I, it really was. I mean, a total blindside.
0: Oh. Um, and your and your daughter is recovering from this catastrophic neck injury and accident and I whoa. it it sounds like for someone listening, it sounds to us like we would imagine the walls were closing in. How did um, you, is that was that your experience? No.
1: You know, I don't know where this, um, I don't know where I got, I mean, the power to accept. I had been in Al-Anon, which is a 12-step support group, and um, gotten so many tools from them. And again, I had been involved in, in wonderful churches where I had great spiritual leaders. Mm. And and so the support I got was immeasurable. and. And, you know, going back to my mom always saying the rosary at night, I started to think about Our Lady and about how she had to watch her son die. And I remember saying to myself, you know, after he passed away, if she can watch that and get through that, who am I to be any different? Uh... And, you know, it's not easy. And again you know, with lots of support, people people taught me how to accept, and I learned that I don't have to like things to accept them just as they are and just as they aren't.
2: Mm.
1: And I also learned from another priest that was so wonderful in my life who, who said to me, you carry your cross with grace and dignity, or you're crushed under the weight of it. And so, although it, it was terribly sad, and it still is terribly sad, and I don't think it will ever be a hole that's healed, Mm. but it wasn't so, like, traumatic that I, I couldn't get through it, um, I allowed myself to cry, I allowed myself to be held up by friends and, and support groups, um, I allowed myself to, um, and that was hard, because I'm kind of the person that doesn't really like to accept help,
0: yeah, I
1: do it all on my own,
0: yeah,
2: but,
1: that was a time when I really learned. People, you know, brought me meals and said to me, what can I do for you? And girlfriends came and drove me up to spiritual places that meant things for them, you know, in, in the woods. And we sat by waterfalls and just in silence. And people gave me that space to to grieve where as much as I needed. Um, mm. So, um
0: and you were able to recognize it for what it was. That feels huge to me is that you were, you will, you, I think what you said that that priest gave you was so big. We have to be willing to carry our cross with grace and dignity, or we will just be crushed by it. A cross is by definition a crushing force, Absolutely. it's an obliterating force. And mm-hmm. we, Talk to us about how you carry these crosses with grace and dignity. What kind of what kind of things do you do you do or say to yourself that allow you to carry your cross with grace and dignity?
1: Um. Well, the other thing around my son's death was, you know, he was adopted and and given up for adoption. Um, he didn't know his biological father. His uh, adopted father did not have a great relationship with him. And so what gave me peace was he has a heavenly father that it will be there for him 24-7 now. Mm. Um, you know, he has that. When he And it's something he's always wanted. He used to cry at night. And, I mean, he said to me, I feel like a, a, a cat that was thrown away in a garbage can. Oh. And,
2: you
1: know... Um, he, at one point, he got in some legal trouble. I went to, to get him out of jail, and he said to me, is Daddy coming? And I said, you know, I'm it. I'm it. Um, and, um, you know, I think he finally realized that this has to be enough. And, um, you know, so as far as what I did, I, I just, I kept, I kept doing life. Um, I didn't allow myself to wallow in it. Um, I just kind of, with every stumble, I say to myself, okay, it's a stumble, stumble, feel what you have to feel and then go on. Um, because I can't stay stuck in it. I have other children. I have grandchildren. Mm. Um, you know, if I didn't have them, I don't know whether I would have survived through what I survived. Um, but I can't imagine leaving my other loved ones. Um, and so they gave me the strength as, as long, as, along with my faith and faith and support group and, um, and my friends and my family. Um, you know, so I, I, I've always loved music. I've sang in choir since I'm seven years old, mm. um, you know, so music brings a huge, um, piece of peace to me. And, uh, um, Staying involved, you know, working. Um, um, and when I worked, I worked with the homeless. I worked with addicts. I worked with people who had HIV. Um, and so I always thought to myself, no matter what I'm going through, it's not as bad as, as you know, the people I'm serving.
0: What was your, What was your role with them? What did you do in your work for them?
1: Uh, individual therapy and group therapy. Um, I did, uh, I worked in a methadone clinic. Um, I've worked in, um, inpatient and outpatient. Um, I've worked in rehab. I've worked in detox. Um, Wow. You know, so, um, always seeing people more worse off than me, you know, coming in off the streets and struggling with their, what they're, they're struggling with. I thought, who am I to be any different? I mean, you know, and and I think sharing some of that. I'm, of course, I never fully disclosed to my patients everything, but picking and choosing what to disclose that helps them really does help them, and um, and I think they get to see that. You know, it's part of life, and no one ever promises that life was going to be easy. Yes. Um, and you know, I really thought at one point that you know somewhere along the line, if I had enough faith that. Life is going to be easy, and and I realize faith is a tool. It doesn't make life easy. It gives me, again, the tools to cope with life.
0: You are sharing with us such richness. It is, uh, you know, one of the things that I remember hearing an author say once that I haven't thought of in years, but it just popped into my head as you were talking, is this author says, a lot of us think that we are, are living our lives as if life is something that we possess. And he said, we don't live life, life lives us. Amen. Isn't you know, that true? Life is living in us. We well, are, you know, we, yeah.
1: We, we spend our lives trying to force solutions to, to where what we want. And I think when I, again, joined Alanon, I realized that I had to accept life as it unfolded to me that it wasn't something I needed to seek but I needed to accept it as it unfolds with my higher power um, being in charge and and turning my will over to him and my life it's easy to turn your life over it's not so easy to turn your will over
0: oh now let me ask you a lot of our listeners have heard of Al-Anon it's a term that they've heard before but they may not know what it is what is Al-Anon is
1: Step support group for people who have been affected by someone else's drinking alcohol. They have Narnon for people who have been affected by drug abuse. Um, It's a 12-step program uh, taken from Alcoholics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous is for the alcoholic and um, Al-Anon
2: is for the friends and families of alcoholics.
0: And I'm a member of this fellowship as well, and there is alcoholism in my family. And one thing that I will say is a term that Al-Anon uses that I think is very helpful is anyone is welcome to come as long, the only qualification for membership is to have a loved one, a family member, a friend, a, a colleague, somebody in your life who has a problem with alcohol. And the word that they use for that, I think is really interesting. It's your qualifier. You know, a person who qualifies you to be there. And what I find is most people, not only is is addiction so rampant in in the world that it's almost always just one degree of separation away from us, um, if not in our own lives. But I also would say that this this program must have helped you so much as a social worker.
1: Oh, completely. Completely. Um, it, it, It really... It, it changed my life. It did give me so many coping skills, and um, and to work at both my private life and my first pers- uh, my working life. Mm. Um, you
0: know, so what? You know, another thing that I wanted to say that I that I'm hearing in your story, and um, it reminds me of something you told me once that I'd love for our listeners to hear. You. One of the main problems that people have is believing that they are not enough, that the person that God made as God made us is not enough. We're not enough to, uh, to cope with life or we're not enough for the people in our life. We're not worthy of love. We're not worthy of success. We're not worthy of so many things. And one of the things I'm hearing you say is I'm sure there's good days and bad days with this, but you have a fundamental orientation. Of working to believe you are enough, the person God made is enough, and that you have a right to be here, and that you and I remember there was a phrase that you said one time that I loved. That was um, somebody who maybe was feeling critical of you. Somebody was criticizing you for uh, for for something that was a part of your personality, and you said to them, "I'm as good as I'm gonna get." Amen. I'll never. <laughs> You said, if 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 I'm not good enough for you as I am, then I don't know what to tell you because I'm as good as I'm going to get. Yes. It's and, such and a helpful frame. I loved it is, that. It is. And the other one is that God doesn't make junk. Yes. You know, um,
1: and, and so I had that exact frame of mind as a child of, like, such shame of who I was and how I wasn't worthy and how I didn't love myself, and I entered into a marriage that way, of, of not feeling that way, and I'm sure that contributed to part of our divorce. Mm. Um, and, and as I went through my transfer spiritual transformation, I did be- begin to see that, you know, I, I am okay, and that God made me exactly the way I'm supposed to, with as many trials and tribulations, and I also learned um, through this that, you know, you either accept people just the way they are, with all their um, warts, mm. or you let them go. Uh, you know, I used to think I, in my marriage, that if I loved someone enough, that I could make them change. Mm. And I, the only person I can change is myself in my own attitudes. Mm. Um, so
0: that's humongous. That's humongous.
1: It is. it is. And so now we we come to the present, where recently I've had two mastectomies. And uh, gone through chemotherapy and radiation and have been cured of that mm. um, by the grace of God. Um, I continue to just try to be service to the world, to keep a positive attitude, to help others who need help, um, and, and to keep... Keep trying to be as positive as I can for myself and others. It's not mm. always easy. There are days that I think to myself, oh, who wants to do that? Today I'm in a bad mood. Today I want my anger to rule. Yeah. And then I say to myself, you know what? You're allowed a few hours on your pity pot, and then you need to get up and do something about it.
2: Oh. Uh-huh. And,
1: and, uh, and having you and this church that I belong to, um, is just another part of my uh, support group, and it's it's wonderful to belong. Mm. And people say to me, oh, you don't have to belong to a church to have a relationship with God, and I always say, no, you don't, but it's so nice to belong, and I think having that sense of belonging for children is so important for adults who are struggling, to hear such wonderful Gospels, um, you know, that give you strength. Uh. Um, To hear you speak every Sunday, that gives me strength. Um,
0: I'm so honored to know that. Thank you.
1: Oh, you know, um, I hope I pass down to my daughter and my grandchildren the same thing. That I do not have anything left to leave them but my faith. Mm. And I pray that that's enough.
0: Mm. Wow. I, I believe in all my heart that it is. And you know, one... One of the things that feels very sacred about these conversations is that I hope that they will last uh, for posterity for the, the future generations. I would love for your grandsons, who are precious to us here at the church, to someday as adults get to hear this and say, Wow, I really appreciated hearing that part of the story. I I heard I knew my grandmother lived that way, but I didn't know that that was I didn't know the detail of that. I mean, I just think this is such a treasure for you to be able to pass on to them. Such a treasure. There are a couple of questions I'd like to ask everyone that that sure. sits in your chair and I'm just wondering these are these are questions that uh, affect all of us right now, and I'm wondering what your response might be first of all to the question does everything happen for a reason? Many people comfort themselves during hard times by saying, I believe this is happening for a reason. Other people say, I don't think things happen for a reason. I think they just happen and we're called to cope. What do you think?
1: Um, I think that there has always been a divine plan for my life. Um, I know that God gives us freedom of choice. Um, but I do believe that everything happens for a reason. I, 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 you know, so many people are afraid. And I, I know when I talk to people who are in pain or suffering from something, um, that they have a really difficult time because they, um, they say, well, what's my purpose in life? You know, like I, I have a friend who just lost a daughter and I say to her, you had a purpose whether she was here or not. And I, I, I believe that you know we're giving the parents who we're supposed to have, um, and I believe that each painful thing that we go through strengthens our faith. Mm. And if we didn't have pain in our life, I don't know if I'd have God in my life. Like, what what would be the purpose to to grab onto Him? Uh. So I do, I I do believe that it's all predestined. Um. I think that, you know, as we make our choices, God shifts the path a little. Mm. Um, but I do believe that he has a beginning and an end for us. Uh, what we do in the middle is, is kind of sometimes we screw it up, sometimes we get it right. Um, but I think there's
0: a plan. I, I, I think what you're doing is remarkable, too, in that you don't take away our free will. It doesn't mean we're a marionette puppet. Oh, not at all. We get to I, do know, somebody, what we want.
1: Somebody once said to me when I thought that way, God is not Santa Claus. You don't write, write your li- list and expect it to be there under the tree tomorrow.
0: <laughs> yeah, isn't it true? Oh. You know? um,
1: I can write my list and then I have to pray and do my legwork and the rest is up to God.
0: You said that you will allow yourself to sit on the pity pot for a little while if that's what's needed, but then you refuse to stay there. You are going to keep moving forward. That right there is uh, something that a lot of folks find impossible to do or they don't know how to do it. It's hard for them. They don't know how to move from the pity pot back to their feet and move forward. What is the key to that? What is it that you do? to get yourself off of the pity pot when that's where you are?
1: Um, I think it goes back to acceptance. I think it's very hard for people to move on because they think that they have to like it to move on. I always thought that. This is totally unacceptable, I would say to myself when I was younger. I can say that all the time and be stuck in pain, but what good does that do me?
2: Uh... What What good
1: does it do anybody? I mean, I could sit here and cry for hours. Is anything good going to come out of it? Um, To move forward, I think you have to accept that this is part of God's will. And again, no one told you you have to like it. Um, But the more I accept, the more I can move forward. And I think you also have to have a strong faith. I know many people who have gone to 12-step support groups who say, who have relapsed or said, you know, they can't get through this. and It's because they don't have the faith. Ah, yeah, it, there's got to be a spiritual foundation for you to move forward I believe mm. if I didn't have a God to believe in or a faith to rely on how, what would I be moving on to
2: mm.
1: what would I be accepting of mm. I just, I'd be angry at God and I'd say it's your fault and you took him
2: mm.
1: and you know somebody else once told me also that God doesn't take he receives
2: ah
1: and so I have to find another way of looking at something. When you, when you change the way you look at something, the, the situation changes. And so I try to find another way to look at it.
0: Um, and I love the humility of saying there is no reason why this other way to look at it couldn't just be just as true as the other way to look at it. You know, yeah. that the conventional wisdom way doesn't necessarily contain more truth than the, uh, the the side view that gives more hope. Right. And where do I want to sit? Oh, my, my, my. That's powerful. Uh, I, I think, I hope that people are hearing what sounds, to, to a certain listener, um, you may have said something that is going to be life-changing. You don't have to like what happens in order to accept it. Right. That is a very, that's very subtle wisdom there. That's very subtle. It almost sounds like you're like you're not saying much, but you're saying so much there. You don't have to like it. Your acceptance does not mean approval. No. You don't approve of it. That doesn't mean if you if a relationship crumbles because someone leaves you and it's a disgraceful way to behave, you don't have to like it to accept that it happened and to be unwilling to stay stuck. Yes. Oh, that's powerful. Uh You know, a lot of people are seeing coronavirus as nothing but a curse. Other people are seeing it as an opportunity because it means that all of us in the world are having an experience that we can learn and grow from and we can choose differently as we go forward. From where you sit, what are your best hopes for what can happen for us as a a community, as a people, as a world after coronavirus? What are you hoping can come from this challenge?
1: I've seen Corona, you know, and I feel for everyone who's lost anybody or has gotten very sick over it. But I I, I see a lot of positive things coming out of Corona. And, um, you know, I think people have learned the importance of faith. I have, think that people have learned the importance of coming together as a faithful community. Um, I think that it's important that families spend more time. I mean, I look at how many people were working just to put food over their, in their kids' mouths and pay their mortgage. And they were so filled with that and had to be, Yeah, that, you know, that so many other things get left by the wayside.
2: Mm. And I
1: think that, you know, um, I was, I'm, I'm grateful enough that COVID didn't affect me financially. I'm, you know, I'm on social security and disability. So that stayed the same. I didn't lose that. Mm. Um so, the uh, you know, it allowed me to stay home and focus more on what I like to do. It allowed me to spend more time with my grandchildren.
2: Mm. I
1: think that it, uh, it's, it's allowed me to visit with my family more. It's allowed me to understand, um, you know, that um, we have to re- treasure the people we have in our lives uh, when they are here. And, um, you know, love more, fight less. Um, you know, I, I think those are positive things that come out of co- co- uh, COVID and, I, and you know, I can't wait for the day that, um, and I still don't understand why I can go to Walmart, but I can't go to church
2: 24-7. <laughs> um, you
1: know, um, uh, you know I I, I I think that it's good that we all are looking towards our health and washing our hands. Uh, I laugh and I say, weren't we doing that before?
2: Mm. Um,
1: <laughs> mm. You know, um, yeah. <laughs> so um you know i again that's the great unknown i don't know what will unfold i trust that god is still in, in control and um and that you know good things will continue to come out of it oh um, i i I, think
0: I share it with you i share it with you i do i do and i am um, I am grateful that um, one of the things we made a decision to do a long time ago uh, at our parish was to ignore the advice of the insurance adjusters and leave the church open every day during daylight hours, which uh, it's a risk. It's a risk. Mm-hmm. But faith is about risk. Faith. You said, you just said faith and fear can't live under the same roof.
1: No, you
0: have to choose one. Oh, so let's... Before we go, I'd love to just invite the listeners to, to join in a couple moments of savoring before we move on to the next thing, and just enjoy what it was that from this conversation gave you hope and strength today. What was it that, that you heard that is going to help you on your way forward?
1: Um, I have to remember every day that God doesn't make junk. And that, you know, it's okay to falter as long as I don't stay down. Um, that I need to pick myself up on a daily basis, no matter what comes my way. Um, and, uh, and to, you know, just to continue to work on my own spirituality. I, I think that, you know, it was fearful for me to do this today. But, you know, one of my um, other sayings that I hold on to is push the comfort zone. Hmm. And I find that when I when I push it, that always helps, helps me spiritually. Um,
2: it's yeah. something I
1: used to always say to my, my patients. Um, push the comfort zone to the point where they said to me, if you ever die, that's what you put on your, your tombstone. And I
2: said,
1: <laughs> unless you're willing to get uncomfortable, nothing will ever change. And so if you want change in your life, you have to be willing to push the comfort zone and take it, as you said, those risks and strengthen on a daily basis. Um, so that's probably the best thing I can say as far as moving forward is it's still accepting whatever comes my way. Um, you know, uh, I have to pray that the cancer stays in remission. I pray that, that, um, you know, I've had enough, uh, trauma in my life that I don't have anymore, but whatever comes is not of my doing. So, um, you know, I know that God will give me the strength to get through whatever it is.
0: What a powerful phrase. What a powerful awareness. God will give me the strength to get through whatever comes. My grandmother had a magnet on her fridge that said, don't be afraid of tomorrow. God is already there. Yes. And I thought, wow. Well, let me tell you some of the things that you've said that are going to go into into my notebook because I've been jotting down. Um, Your mother saying to you, the only thing I have to leave you is my faith and you wishing that same thing for your daughter and grandchildren. Um, You saying that you've gotten everything you ever prayed for, not on the schedule you wanted necessarily, but you've gotten everything you've ever prayed for. The story of you praying in desperation for an apartment and then finding yourself on a dead end road with a complex that had an apartment that happened to be at your price range. Um, You telling your children that different isn't wrong. Different isn't wrong. Um, The fact that you didn't realize your parents were giving you tools with those faith practices as a child, but that later you realized that was a tool in your toolbox. Um, Fear and faith not living under the same roof. Uh, Us not living our lives, but life living us. And, And the one that you heard me just say, I just am amazed by. You don't have to like it to accept it and move on. Yeah. Wow. All right, everybody, let's admit this was a, this was rich. This was like pumpkin cheesecake with truffle oil. (laughs) I, Julianne. I have a a pumpkin cheesecake in the refrigerator. If you'd like to come over. Don't mind if I do. Don't mind if I do. Julianne, I can't thank you enough for this time. Thank you for sharing your story. Whenever we do that, it, it, it does come at a cost. It, it caused you to have to go back and really probe some of the wounds that are um, still healing. So I just want to, on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you. Thank you for, for allowing us to leave our comfort zone by hearing your story. We are so grateful.
2: Thank you, Father.
0: And thank you one and all. God bless you.